Hey, we're back. So the title, Why Are You List? Underscore. What's missing there? What's missing between the list and the inning? Well, list and lust are two words that are correlated that I did not know were correlated until very recently. Sometime after oh, mid-July in 2016, someone challenged me to ask God, God Almighty, Yahweh, Jesus Christ, Father, Son, Holy Ghost, ask Him what lies do I believe about Him and anything else? Annie Larkin challenged me that at Guatai Church in Guatai, California. And if I'm right in my recalling of my handwritten notes, it was July 22nd or a, a Wednesday in the second to last week of July or somewhere within a week of that because I remember that it was in July and it was 2016. And gradually from there to here, everything has changed. Everything has changed. I cannot idly lie and get by without giving an account for that lie. That's, the, that's that whole deal, you know, in the Bible, everybody's worried about what you're going to be judged for and what you're going to be judged on. And, you know, a lot of that is, <clears throat> you know, seventh grade memes that get stuck in your gut somewhere and you just can't get them out. You want to be part of the in crowd and the in crowd is always judging you by what you look like on the outside or what comes out of your mouth or you know the deeds you do oh that was stupid you know those kind of things that's not the way that idle words are accounted for we give an account for every idle word we speak by virtue that's kind of the good side of power. Virtue is, you know, the good side of energy. The, the light side, the right side. Virtue. So by virtue of whatever it was I was going to say. Give me a second here. I'm talking about judging and being judged and most human beings have a concept of judgment that they established as the right way it was done because that's the way it was done to me and we learned that in seventh grade well that's not the way that idle words are accounted for or the speakers of idle words are 
accounted for. Idle words are accounted for by virtue of the fact that what you say is really what you get. Now this has been noted by me. And I think it's uh, evidence of what Rupert Sheldrick would call morphic resonance. That somewhere around the early 1990s, for the very first time, or maybe it was in the 1970s, you know, I don't really know, but you can look it up. This Rosenthal guy was the was the decision maker at the New York Times. And one of the Nixon tapes had a non-deleted expletive in it. And the New York Times had a policy up through at least 1991. They had a policy of not publishing... Um, profane words uh, I can't remember what they call them you know shit and damn and fuck and hell and few others like that and those words began to be used publicly more commonly than they had ever been used publicly before but they began to use being used publicly the same way that they were used on a golf course or in a dugout or in a bivouac or on a 40-mile hike with a pack on your back or in whispers on ambush at night. Whispering. Whispering, just idle words, most of them useless, useless, shit this, shit that, friggin' this, friggin' that. But when we take the words and we, we twist them just that little bit, you know, we, we say friggin' instead of fucking. And, you know, deep, deep in me, there's still a very tender spot in me where I, I don't like to hear people say that word the way they say it on television these days. But the way they say it on television these days, wind it back to when Rosenthal made the decision to go ahead and print the word S-H-I-T in the New York Times. And all the people that read the New York Times began to consider that word in a completely different way. You know, if shit is part of the truth that happened, we all know shit happens. 
we learned that from Forrest Gump, and that was one of the lessons. That was just one of the lessons that everybody in the whole baby boom generation learned lessons from Forrest Gump. We learned that we had grown up in the very same world to which there were multiple points of view, which when seen from the perspective of a simple-minded soul who could not tell a lie because it just wasn't the right thing to do. And then somewhere, you know, back a little before that, Spike Lee comes out with this movie that's going to show white men in rural Arizona what it's like to be a black man in New York City or you know some east coast big city whatever where where there's a whole culture that has arisen in that particular city where that culture has champions that they embody in sports teams and you know they wear sports jerseys that's got their hero's name on the back and that kind of stuff there. They join themselves into little you look like me so you're like me clicks. Clicks like in cliche makes a click. It's like a, a phrase of words that were typeset so often that the typesetters would just keep them ready at hand and sometimes a cliche was repeated only to take up space only to add space it was an idle word it meant nothing but you know you could stretch a sentence enough to give you a right justified margin by adding an ly here and there and that was harmless right it just a bit more of a descriptor as to how the action was accomplished. Tom Swiftly, wisdom, comes dripping down through the generations. Through me, there are wise sayings that can come out of things that my great, great, great grandfather, Mac Boyette's father, You know, there's a, a person in my male family line who has served under every single flag of Texas, including me, if you include the United States flag, to which I did swear allegiance. And I have forsworn that allegiance by being born again beyond the uh, beyond the state of being that I was in when it was possible for me to even believe that I owed allegiance to a flag and a republic for which it stands as opposed to owing allegiance to my fellow men with whom 
I agree that we should behave. Behave is a good word we'll get into someday. But I should behave as though none of them are my enemy. I should accept this idea that in my country, we trust in God as big as you can possibly imagine him, as powerful as you can possibly imagine him, as unified as you can possibly imagine him. And if he still needs a womb, you know, there are stories that abound that explain to us how the idea of God became everything that is around us that we agree to see. I believe that if there's a fellow on the other side of this valley and he's looking back at me, his point of view on the world is totally different than mine. For he and I to agree, we have to believe that there is a point of view that is beyond us. And lo and behold, we both have Google Earth and we can both type in Pine Valley, California and we can see one another's house the way it was just a few days ago when there were three cars parked in my driveway. There weren't always three cars in my driveway. There used to be a sign of uh, great wealth. I've got a neighbor down the road that's got about eight cars parked in his driveway. One of them is a 51 Studebaker. He used to call those, uh, what was it, redneck trust funds? White trash trust funds. I grew up in a drunk junk yard. Grew up in a junkyard. I think we called it a wrecking yard. And my uncle Jim, who's uh, my oldest living relative right now, told me about his childhood. He was born in 1934, so he was seven years old when the United States started really going into a war footing for World War II. And there was a lot of salvage opportunities. You know, everybody was salvaging tires and salvaging this and salvaging that. And uh, anybody who was around that junkyard, my granddaddy's junkyard, you could use any tool that you knew how to use. And uh, you were free to experiment. It was just a totally different environment than most eight-year-olds today could imagine. But between the time when my Uncle Jim was eight years old in 1942, and when I was eight years old in 
1956. Life around the wrecking yard had not changed a whole lot. There was a little deeper layer of grease, I'm sure, on the floor. The smell was just uh, the smell of greasy mechanic smells, the smell of burnt brake pads, the, you know, the smell of that solvent stuff that you used on your hands at the end of the day to take the grease off, and the Life Boy soap that was in the bathroom, and the the lava soap that was in the men's bathroom. In that junkyard, we had acetylene torches. So the eight-year-old kids got to learn the idea that the acetylene is the fuel, the oxygen makes burn. And the more oxygen you add, and the less acetylene, you can get down to this tiny little point of flame. And if you are real careful with that tiny little point of flame, you can write your name on the crusted grease on the garage floor. And uh, fill the whole place up with smoke and not set off a single alarm. I, I grew up in a dangerous world now that I think about it. But it was a great learning experience. And that's where the whole idea of the podcast comes from. I've never had a 70-year-old man sit down and think with me what was it like what was it like and I've tried this with a few people and and some of those will come up in these podcasts and if any of you would like to have those conversations get in touch with me get in touch with me we grew up in a world the same world Forrest Gump grew up in we grew up in Forrest Gump is fiction. Forrest Gump is not a lie. An hour a day, is that what we should shoot for? An hour of discussing matters that we kind of drift off on, that we forget we were talking about clouds that we were both able to see. We live in interesting times, you know. I'll bring this up time and again as well because I haven't researched well enough to know how deep it goes, but I heard that when the British and the Americans, which is the British, basically, you know, the British Empire, the seat of power sort of changed, like uh, going from Rome to Constantinople. It, the seat of power did shift from the core 
of London. I can't remember what they called it, but the, you know, the banking core of London. That power did shift slowly to New York City and Washington, D.C. But it's much more uh, diversified now. It's the same power. It's the same god of war who controls the economic realities that we live in. You know, if the weapons manufacturers weren't employing the X number of thousand people that they are employing at Boeing and Lockheed and Raytheon and is General Dynamics still around? I can't remember. SAIC. Um, oh, there were a half a dozen others, maybe at least three that I worked for in the late 80s and 90s who were involved in some aspect of um, government contracting for weapons. Uh, Star Wars stuff was... Uh, there was just... That was the kind of place where guys who could uh, Im imagine crazy weapons in outer space they they sort of were drawn to those kind of places and when you raised your hand and you said hey I'm a unemployed don't know how to do anything but I own a Macintosh can you use me somehow I got jobs I mean uh, we'll talk about the situation that I was in in 1985 some other time I've recorded those stories and was not bold enough to tell them an earlier time in my life, but I think I just might publish that part of my history more than once. Maybe I'll publish it the way I thought it was to be told two years ago, and then I'll rethink it with you, and we'll discuss the matter, and we will look at this idea of there being a time predicted in the Bible where knowledge would be increased. There being a time predicted that uh, those people who know God, the God I've been talking about here, that God, people who know him, unified so we don't have to sweat wombed or unwombed. He's, a, he's one. People who know him will talk often one with another in those days, and they will do exploits. Exploits, I always thought, were these just like big, explosive kinds of things. But that's not what an exploit is. And we will explore the depths of our exploits as we converse one another in these days after which there has been an explosion of knowledge. That guy Daniel who was you know on the the Torah compilation committee in Babylon back in the day Daniel was told that as he was 
you know, researching all the stuff that he had to research to, you know, help people realize that, hey, we are living in changing times and the times are about to change way more drastically than they ever will again until what I know now is revealed. And uh, Daniel said, well, that, that's not going to happen until the last days. Well, at 70, I've decided that these are, in fact, my last days. things keep going the way they're going, it's a good chance that I'll still have my wits about me when I'm a hundred years old. Good odds. But that's only 30 years from now, and I know for a fact that 30 years ago people were still discussing whether or not the New York Times was correct in making its decision to print the word S-H-I-T. Because all the shit that's happened since then has led me to conceive this concept that what we say and say and say and say and say even without thinking we just keep saying and saying and saying that we are someday called to account for all of those idle words that we have said and make something of them fertilizer we fertilize the future with all our failed efforts. And the effectual, fervent prayer, and we're, we're not going to go there in this episode, but it's not very likely that you and I agree as to what prayer is. So it's pretty difficult to imagine that you and I agree in prayer. Unless we're both of the same mind and we just cast all our care upon him because he cares for us. And we consider that prayer. And we say thanks and take that which he has granted us and give it away. I hope you're back here another day and we can talk together. Auf Wiedersehen. God be with you. Adios.